Hello and welcome back to this episode of the High Yield Podcast of Medicine. In this episode, we continue our discussion of limp in children. In the previous episode, we discussed the causes of acute limp in febrile child. And in this episode, we will discuss the other causes of limp in children. I don't want to categorize them as antalgic versus non-antalgic or acute versus chronic or traumatic versus non-traumatic because they can belong to one or more of these categories. For example, in the case of a slipped capital femoral epiphysis, we may or may not have history of trauma. Likewise, a child who is a victim of abuse or non-accidental trauma may not be a reliable historian as opposed to a child with an overt history of fracture. On the other side, while most of the conditions that we will discuss, including slipped capital femoral epiphysis, leg calf perte disease, or fractures and child abuse could be more commonly associated with ontologic gait, at least a couple of the conditions such as developmental dysplasia of the hip or other conditions associated with leg length inequality or discrepancy will be associated with non-antalgic gait. So the overall take-home message is to pay a very close attention to all the details and overall clinical scenario provided. Also, while we'll discuss lower extremity fractures and bone tumors in their dedicated episodes, our focus in this episode will mainly be on slipped capital femoral epiphysis, leg calf disease, and developmental dysplasia of the hip. Let's start with the developmental dysplasia of the hip. I'll refer to it as DDH from now on. What is developmental dysplasia of the hip or DDH? It's simply hip joint laxity due to shallow or poorly formed acetabulum that predisposes to subluxation or frank dislocation of the head of the femur. Remember that given this spectrum that does not necessarily always include dislocation, the initial terminology which was congenital hip dysplasia is now abandoned. For example, many newborn kids could have normal examination at birth. To understand the risk factors for DDH, we need to have a more clear understanding of the pathogenesis. What are the two arms of the pathogenesis of DDH? One is, as we mentioned, the poorly formed or shallow acetabular fossa, but the other way to look at it is also conditions that result in excessive hip flexion in utero, which itself causes excessive stretching of posterior hip capsule, resulting in lax musculature and contracture. Based on this pathogenesis, what are the well-known risk factors for DDH? To put it simple, conditions that cause general ligamental laxity. One is female gender, the other is firstborn infant, then is breech presentation. Finally, we have oligohydramnius or multiple gestation. All these conditions would cause ligamental laxity. So once more, what are the epidemiologic factors associated with DDH? It's more common in girls and firstborn kids and also in infants with family history of DDH. What are the symptoms of DDH? There is no symptom. What are the clinical exam findings or signs of DDH? Simply positive Barlow maneuver, positive Ortolani maneuver, positive Galezi sign, as well as asymmetric hip abduction or asymmetric 
buttock and thigh folds. Describe the Barlow maneuver. Barlow is a maneuver that attempts to dislocate a dislocatable hip. The initial positioning is abducted and 90 degree flexed thigh. Posterior pressure is then applied on the inner aspect of the thigh while the hip is brought into adduction. A dislocatable hip would result in an audible clunk and not a click while the femoral head dislocates posteriorly. Once more, remember the direction of pressure is posterolateral while bringing the abducted hip to adduction. What is Ortolani maneuver? Ortolani maneuver that attempts to reduce a dislocated hip is opposite of Barlow maneuver. The initial positioning of Ortolani is the final positioning of Barlow. That's hip adduction. The maneuver is performed by abducting the thighs from the midline while applying anterior and upward pressure with the middle finger that's located on the greater toe counter. A soft click in the case reduction of the moral head into the acetabulum. Again, remember, positive Barlow results in an audible clunk, while positive Ortolani results in a soft click. Okay, what is the Galezi sign? Galezi or Alice sign is a maneuver that helps identify an apparent femoral length difference. The positioning starts with the infant lying supine with hip flexion at 90 degrees with feet flat on the table opposing the buttocks and then observing the femoral length. In patients with DDH or hip dislocation, the knee appears shorter on the affected side. That's because DDH is associated with a posterior displacement. Now, what is the major limitation of Galezi sign? If both hips are dislocated, Galezi will not show any femoral length discrepancy. Now, another important question about limitation of these maneuvers. What is an important limitation to Barlow and Ortolani maneuvers? Barlow and Ortolani are not useful after about two to four months of age. Why is it so? Because the hip stabilizes in either dislocated or reduced position and also because of the contracture formation. What tests can help diagnose DDH after ages two to four months? One is Galezi sign and the other is asymmetric abduction of the hips or asymmetries that could be observable in the folds, naming the thigh, buttock, or inguinal folds asymmetry. How is the diagnosis of DDH established? If any of these four signs are positive, especially in a kid with risk factors, the diagnosis is established and the kid should be immediately referred to an orthopedic surgeon. In other words, there is no radiographic confirmation required. What is the rule of imaging then for establishing the diagnosis of DDH? If the diagnosis is equivocal, for example, in cases of risk factors, Factors present like breach presentation but no clear physical exam signs we use imaging to establish the diagnosis now what is the rule of choice of imaging in diagnosing DDH if the infant is younger than four to six months of age and therefore femoral head is not yet ossified ultrasound is the diagnostic method of choice but for infants older than four to six months, 
anteroposterior radiographs are the imaging of choice. Now, remember that not only the choice of imaging depends on the age of the patient, the management options also depends on the age at the diagnosis. The general rule is the earlier the diagnosis, the less likely surgical interventions will be needed. While the four to six months was the cutoff point for the choice of imaging, what is the cutoff point of age for the choice of management in DDH? That's six weeks. Describe the management of DDH. If the diagnosis is made prior to week six, the management is by Pavlik harness. If the diagnosis is made after six weeks, the management is surgery. What are the other indications of surgery for DDH? If the hips are bilaterally dislocated or if the hips are not reducible on physical exam. And of course, if the Pavlik harnesses fail to stabilize the hip. Describe the function of the Pavlik harness. This harness holds the head of the femur against the acetabulum and helps normal formation of the acetabular fossa. Now, what are the possible complications of DDH? Leg length discrepancy, avascular necrosis of the femoral head, limp, and osteoarthritis. Okay, let's move on to leg calf Perth's disease, which is simply the avascular necrosis of the femoral head. What are the epidemiologic features of leg calf Perth's? It's more common among Asians and Caucasians with the male to female ratio of 4 to 1 and is especially seen among active teen boys between ages 4 and 8 years. What's the important point regarding the progression of symptoms in leg calva Perth's disease? It's initially asymptomatic, then it manifests with painless limp that's then followed by antalgic gait and finally there will be thigh muscle atrophy. The pain may radiate to groin, anterior thigh or to the knee. What limitations of hip movement at physical exam are typical for leg calf Perth's disease? There is decreased internal rotation and abduction of the hip. This could be assessed by log rolling the leg internally. True or false, leg calvapers disease is never associated with trauma. That's false, even though we consider it an idiopathic avascular necrosis. It can happen also sometimes after trauma. True or false, leg calvapers disease is always unilateral. That's false. Up to 20% of cases are bilateral. True or false, the diagnosis of leg calvapers disease is clinical without a need for imaging confirmation. That's false. The diagnosis requires imaging. What imaging should be ordered for the diagnosis of leg calvapers disease? Anteroposterior as well as frog leg lateral x-ray of the pelvis. What are the imaging findings in leg calf pets disease? Either increased density in femoral head as well as flattening or fragmentation of capital femoral epiphysis or the crescent sign. What is the crescent sign? A crescentic subchondral fracture in the femoral head. What are the initial management options for leg calf pets disease? Containment, physical therapy and rest. What is containment? It's applying methods such as orthosis or casting to make sure the femoral head is positioned within the acetabular fossa. Resting should include restriction of vigorous exercise as well.
Now, when the management of leg calf pest disease is observation only and when the management requires surgery. Management will be observation only if there is either full range of motion present or femoral head is involved minimally. Otherwise, as we mentioned, that's with extensive involvement or decreased range of motion, we consider bracing, hip abduction with petri cast or an osteotomy. Being more precise, the two important indications of surgery for leg calf pest disease are extensive involvement of femoral head and that's more than 50% involvement or when there is subluxation of femoral head out of the acetabulum. What factor affects the prognosis? The age of the patient. The patients who are younger than 6 to 9 years will usually have complete resolution within 3 years. On the other side, the patients who are older may develop osteoarthritis of the hip later on adult life. Okay, now let's turn our attention to another pathology of capital femoral epiphysis and that is slipped capital femoral epiphysis. What is it precisely? It is simply the displacement of the femoral epiphysis from the femoral neck to the growth plate. Why slipped capital femoral epiphysis should be considered a misnomer? Because it is the femoral head and not the epiphysis that's displaced. In other words, the epiphysis is still contained within the acetabular fossa. In other words, it is metaphysis that moves anteriorly and superiorly relative to the femoral neck. So be very careful on the direction of the specific element of the bone that is displaced. The metaphysis is displayed anterosuperiorly and this results in relative posteroinferior displacement of the femoral head. Simply when one element is moved anterosuperiorly, the opposite is moved posteroinferiorly. More on diagnostic imaging in a second, but first, what is the epidemiology of slipped capital femoral epiphysis? Its age of onset parallels the peak linear growth in adolescence years with males being involved two to three times more than females and it's also more common among obese adolescents. It's also possible among thin kids who have a recent growth spurt and as you can notice there may be a possible underlying endocrine disorders such as hypothyroidism. Another point about epidemiology is that if you are asked what is the most common hip disorder in adolescence especially among those associated with antalgic gait, that is slipped capital femoral epiphysis. What is the most important clinical feature of the slipped capital femoral epiphysis? Ontalgic gait, also known as painful limp, with pain in the groin, hip, or knee. What factor correlates with the severity of the pain? The degree and acuity of the slippage. For example, the pain could be mild in chronic or pre-slip stage, or it could be severe in acute slipping. Remember we mentioned in leg calpers disease, Internal rotation and abduction of the hip were limited. Here in slip capital femoral epiphysis, we again have the same limitation in abduction and internal rotation, but also on flexion. Now, talking about clinical presentation, what are the stable versus unstable slip capital femoral epiphysis? The pre-slip stage in which the physical exam could be normal or demonstrate just mild lamp on external rotation is referred to as stable slip, while inability to bear weight 
or considerable restriction of range of motion are the hallmarks of unstable slipping. Once more, in the stable or pre-slip stage, patients just hold the hip in passive external rotation and they have no difficulty on weight bearing. True or false diagnosis is clinical without a need for imaging. That's false, similar to like Kalfert's disease, slipped capital femoral epiphysis also requires imaging for the diagnosis. And that again includes anteroposterior and frog leg lateral x-rays. Now, what is the earliest finding? The earliest finding that's in the pre-slip or stable level of pathology include widening of physis without slippage. What's the precise imaging in the unstable slippage? The femoral neck or the metaphysis rotates anterosuperiorly along the physis resulting on the femoral head or epiphysis to be placed relatively posterior inferior to the femoral neck. Remember the head still remains within the acetabular fossa. What is the management? Pinning of the epiphysis to prevent further slippage. This could be achieved through open or closed reduction. Remember this pinning of the epiphysis is different from placement of femoral head into a normal alignment with femoral neck because this approach predisposes to the risk of avascular necrosis. That said, what are the possible complications of slipped capital femoral epiphysis, avascular necrosis, limb length discrepancy, osteoarthritis, and chondrolysis, which is degeneration of articular cartilage of the hip. Thanks, this finishes our discussion of certain hip disorders causing limp in children. <laughs>